0: Tooth and Claw Volume 1, Issue 2 Lincoln, England Present Day The Ritz was a 1930s cinema that had been converted into a weatherspoon toward the end of the century. No matter how many times it was redecorated or cleaned, it always wore a faded grandeur, inside and out, while the original light still frazzled that stretch of the high street that was otherwise so gloomy. It could not escape some generally felt regret held across generations as a memory of what it had been before. The open expanse of the main bar and the oppressive ceiling felt like a trap, shunting you into the narrow wedge with whichever combination of dining families and day-long sodden scowls happened to have blundered into it. They stood at the bar whilst their drinks were poured, rum for Drake and a mineral water for Ross. Gambling machines chimed and men burped staring into empty pockets of air scattered round the room, lost in despotic reveries. Even the clink of glasses seemed dull, the lamplight struggling against dark walls and mottled surfaces, caught in the thick air as if in a net. After a drowsy-looking barmaid handed them their drinks, they went to a booth on the far right wall, so that between them they could see the entire length of the bar and entrance. Well, we may have to get comfy for a while, Drake said relaxing into his seat and taking a sip of his rum. Duckstone Junior will be here tonight, but I'm not sure when. Ross looked at him coolly. Drake was a little over six feet, of average build and lean. He was rarely seen at the gym, though he held every major record for physical endeavor in the agency's history. Ross had still been a police officer at the time Drake had set them, but he'd heard the stories. More than that, he'd seen what Drake could do with his own eyes. They'd been at a scrapyard in Paris, scouting a suspected drug deal location. It was a cold spring morning and the dew had yet to lift, the air thin, but for the smell of rubbish and an almost fetid iron taste. They were clambering up a small pile of junk when a large piece of sheet metal came loose from a huge pile of rusted edges to their right and swooshed down towards Drake's head. It was destined to hit him. The speed it flew was such that Ross thought it had. He'd never seen anyone move like that, The metal had thudded into the dirt beneath him and quivered slightly, Drake perfectly balanced on the loose, slippery scrap. He had quickly dismissed Ross's exclamations with a chuckle, as if there'd been nothing extraordinary about his brush with death. He soon had them focused again on exploring the yard, an unassailable quality to the dismissiveness he brandished when he didn't want to discuss anything further. What are we going to do when he gets here? Ross asked, coiled in a corner of the booth. A wave of antagonism rose in his stomach. Why well, talk to him, of course? The father was responsible for what happened at the stadium, but we won't find him any other way than through his son. He's just going to take us to him, is he? He imagined punching Drake square in the jaw. I doubt it, Drake replied, idly spinning a coaster on its end. But it's the quickest way to announce our presence to Duckstone Sr. That'll either get him to crawl out from under his rock or get us invited under it. Ross nodded, almost sneering. He continued to glare at Drake, who maintained his focus on the wobbling coaster. After a moment, Drake felt it and looked up at him. Ross? I can't believe you're going to make me ask, he hissed. I know you have your secrets, and believe it or not, I don't actually want to know them. I've no doubt there's stuff I wouldn't be able to forget, and I like sleeping at night. Drake raised an eyebrow. Not judging Drake. Everyone's got their own past and their own boundaries. I do, however, want to know about things that involve me. Of course, Drake assented. You say of course, but if I hadn't brought this up, would you really have volunteered the information? No. So you see where I'm coming from here. You were the one who told me you had something to tell me, which was to get me out of the stadium and away from whatever you didn't want me to see. You're willfully withholding things from me in the line of duty. Yes. I don't just find that unprofessional and dangerous, Drake, Ross leant forward, lowering his voice but bolstering its tone. I find it fucking offensive. Drake held Ross's gaze for a few seconds. He then leant back and stopped the coaster dead on the table. Understandably, he said, still looking him in the eyes. I'm glad you find it offensive. I would too. And did, in fact, when I first joined. A healthy scepticism of secrecy even, perhaps especially amongst your superiors, is a valuable thing to have. He took another sip of rum. However, as you just implied, there may be things you'll wish to unknow. Ross looked to see if Drake was joking, but all he could see in his dark eyes was the reflection of window glare in the street outside. He found Drake averagely handsome, nothing particularly distinguishing about his face or his short, dark brown hair. His nose was straight and quite small, but the angle of his cheekbones highlighted it so it seemed bigger a plumpish mouth above a small chin, both covered in perpetual stubble on top of a thickish angular jaw. His eyes, however, large and almost black, always seemed to hold light. No matter the time of day or source of illumination, they captured and threw back a moving mirror of the space they saw. Ross shifted uncomfortably. He dragged his focus back. I want to know if it involves me. Very well, Drake nodded. Looked back down at the coaster, then up at Ross with a smile. I am glad you asked. Now you'll want an actual drink. What? No, I'm fine, I don't trust me. A drink is in order. Drake got up and headed to the bar. He returned with two large rums. That's not necessary, Ross said firmly. Fine, I'll just have both. Now what do you know about Duckstone? Is this relevant to what you didn't want me to see at the stadium? Absolutely. Fine. He's probably the largest, but before Ross could continue, Drake suddenly raised his hand. Hold that thought. He downed both drinks and nodded towards the door. Our man's just arrived. Sydney, Australia, 15 years earlier. Robert avoided Chinatown for a few days, but his growing desire to see Hei Lin Hua again meant he was soon back wandering George Street after work. He roamed with no real purpose unless to a chance upon her. He wasn't entirely sure why. He felt some vague need to check she was okay. He was sure she would be. She'd seemed so full of confidence and composure back in the alleyway. He didn't really fancy himself a vigilante anyway. What would he have done if that punk had attacked him? What could he have done? She was beautiful, no denying it. But he didn't feel like he was lusting or even pining after her. He'd been seeing a colleague, just an enjoyable connection, equally shared in its ambivalence, but Lin Hwa had somehow enticed him, something about the way her frown had reluctantly broken into a smile. He sometimes wondered if he'd resigned himself to an ephemeral life, years of floating around, changing everything, homes, schools, jobs, an engaged but shadowed integration with the world. He was used to drifting with the current, he didn't question his need to languidly search for her in the sweltering dark of the city. About three weeks after the skirmish in the alley, Robert left the cinema on George Street at 10pm and headed west. He planned on grabbing a bowl of rice and strolling back through Darling Harbour to his flat in Piermont. It was midweek and the streets were quiet. A few groups ambled around, but there were empty spaces that were full only of hanging light and heavy wind, the hum of aircon systems and the sparse but steady flow of traffic. As he passed a bar, a door flung open behind him and four Chinese men spilled out onto the pavement. One of them, about as tall but wider than Robert, stumbled into him and knocked him into the road. Robert saved his face by extending an arm, breaking his descent. He saw the larger man turn sluggishly towards him, look him up and down, then break into a wide smile. Sorry, bro, he pleaded, leaning forward and taking Robert's hand in his, almost as a supplicant. I am absolutely tanked right now. Are you harassing people again, came a weary voice from the doorway. It belonged to a tall slender man in a long, dark coat, unbuttoned with a red vest underneath. He had black shoulder-length hair and sharp, sculptured features, a slight slouch to his posture as if wanting something to lean on. As the cigarette in his mouth sparked to life, Ross noticed the shorter man stood by his side. The punk from the alley. Now, Johnny, I just knocked this guy over a bit. My fault. But we're good, aren't we, pal? The large man said, still holding Robert's hand. Before Robert could agree, the punk stepped forward. That's him. That's him, Johnny, he squealed venomously. That's the bitch right there. What do you want about, Grom? The guy who was messing with me and Lin Grom barely whispered. Johnny turned quickly to Robert and his eyebrows folded into a scowl. Is that so? Hold him. The large man, despite his inebriation, yanked on Robert's arm and pulled him into a bear hug. Robert struggled in vain. Down here, round the back, Johnny barked, pointing to a small car park. Two of the men held Robert on his knees, Johnny and Grom standing in front of him. Johnny looked around slowly and let out a low whistle through his teeth before taking another drag on his cigarette, then turned and slapped him, hard, across the face. Robert felt his head was going to spin off his neck. His vision blurred, almost instantly. Johnny crouched and took Robert's chin in his hand. "'Bad luck, Waigo Wren. A lesson for you, though, I suppose.' His voice seemed to have a lilt to it as it seeped through the smoke drifting from his mouth and nose. "'Don't. Be. A. Hero.' He yanked his hand from Robert's chin and turned away. Any other Muppet messing with that girl and you'd have been the big boy about town, you'd probably think you are. Decent thing to do, except Grom's just not any Muppet and that wasn't just any girl, so now you're here. Grom punched Robert in the nose. Yeah, bitch. The nose didn't break. The head shunted back just the same and the pain shot straight into the center of his skull. Grom hopped in front of him, a fizzing ball of rage and glee there are rules. Even if you don't know them, they apply to you. So this is your lesson, Johnny said, still looking away. The grey of the car park and the steep walls made the night feel small and stuffy. Grom looked at Johnny for a moment, turned back to Robert, a grin smeared across his face. Robert struggled again, but his captors held firm as Grom leapt forward and lunged at Robert's midriff. The shock of the impact winded him. Slowly, it seemed, as the men cautiously released him, his arms were losing their strength. He felt a slump across his shoulders. He looked down. A widening blot of red was forming through his t-shirt. Fucking bitch, Grom cackled as he retreated, the knife shaking in his hand. Johnny turned dejectedly to Robert. That was not meant to be the lesson. Breathing heavily, he slowly walked towards him. Then in one swift movement he knocked the knife from Gron’s hand and grabbed him by the throat. With sickening ease he lifted him clear off the ground and threw him across the tarmac into a garage door which buckled even under such little weight. But now here we are, Johnny continued. He knelt down in front of Robert and took his chin in his hand once more, drawing their faces closer. Robert tore his eyes from the pulsing crimson of his stomach and saw only Johnny's flared nostrils. Robert blinked from the smoke. I think this is... Johnny silenced him with a shake of his head. It doesn't matter what this is anymore. Robert felt something cold and sharp press against the other side of his stomach and then a slowly escalating pain as first the fabric and then his skin broke. He felt a horrible warmth. His eyes began to flutter and his vision to cloud. Johnny shook his head once more. Robert strained to pull himself across the pure diamond hardness of the car park floor. It was like nothing he'd ever felt. With every drag, the broken bitumen and shingle fired darts of weariness into his muscles, his energy falling out of his torso, mocked by the hard geometry and coarse facades of urban structure. No roots to grasp or stumps to lean on, just the unforgiving uniformity of blunt tactility, refusing to offer his dying body any traction or respite. He turned a corner, not knowing where it led. Not to anywhere safer or more open, but out of that car park at least. His consciousness was beginning to waver as if on a tightrope. The pain that signified his defeat was the only thing snapping him back into the world. A low but warm yellow light hovered up and to his right, its edges bleeding into one another and finally into a throbbing darkness at the edge of his vision. His breathing was heavy now and becoming coarse, like his chest had been scoured with some abrasive. He reached out and felt a dustbin against the wall, where the light seemed to come from. With the last of his strength, he pulled himself halfway to his feet. He leant on the bin, surging up and forward towards the light. The bin gave way and he toppled forward over it. Crashing into the floor into a pool of light at the bottom of a cold, hard steps, he fell. The noise roused someone within, a flurry of footsteps. The door swung open, casting the full beam of the light down onto his crumpled form, out cold on the street, his shadow weak against the far wall. Grandpa, come quickly, shouted Lin Hwa, racing down the steps. Written and recorded by James Fisher. Edited and read by Andy Bennett. Music by Aquifer.